This is History West Midlands. In recent years, the stylish BBC drama Peaky Blinders has focused attention on the criminal gangs of early 20th century Birmingham's backstreets. Now, historian and author Carl Chin tells the real story of the lives of his ancestors and their criminal past in these violent and poverty-ridden communities. With its captivating cinematography, charismatic performances and dramatic title, the Peaky Blinders series on BBC Two has riveted viewers and critics alike since it began in the autumn of 2013. Stylish, yet dark, it is set in the aftermath of the First World War and follows the rise to criminal power of Tommy Shelby and his gang of Peaky Blinders from the back streets of Birmingham to notoriety nationally. These Peaky Blinders are fashionably dressed and are named after the weapon they use in fights. The peaks of their flat caps, into which safety razors have been sewn, and which are then slashed across the foreheads of their opponents, causing blood to pour down into their eyes and blind them. In a fast-moving, thrilling plot with a moody atmosphere, the Peaky Blinders have gripped an international following and infused many to find out if there is a reality behind the fiction. There is... And the reality is as dramatic, bloody and compelling as a mythologised epic. But in no way is it as glamorous. Peaky Blinders did indeed exist in Birmingham, but before the First World War and not after it. And there was not just one gang, there were many. And these Peaky Blinders were not major gangsters. They were backstreet thugs and petty criminals. From the 1870s, Birmingham was plagued by the violence of hooligan gangs known as sluggers. But from the early 1890s, they were also called Peakies and Peaky Blinders. With a threatening name, infused with fear, the Peaky Blinders swiftly gained infamy across Britain and went on to become part of working-class folklore in Birmingham. So, what is my interest in the sluggers and Peaky Blinders? Well, one of them was my great-grandfather, Edward Derrick, and this is the story of how I found out about him and my other criminal ancestors. The story starts with my father's mother, Beatrice May Derrick, better known as Maisie. We did not know much about her and her family, as just before the Second World War, she had left my granddad Chin and their eight children. The older ones stayed in touch with her, but my dad, Buck, was only seven when his mum left and he had little contact with her afterwards. She was born in 1908 and was the daughter of Ada Weldon, a bedstead worker, and Edward Derrick. He was usually called Bummy, a nickname which is supposed to have signified a ganger man on a building site, and indeed for a time he was a bricklayer before becoming a tatter, a rag and bone man. The couple lived in Studley Street, Sparkbrook, which came off the Ladypool Road. Short and narrow as it was, the street was filled with yards of back-to-back terraces and boasted one pub, The Gate. With the adjoining Queen Street, Alfred Street, part of Highgate Road and Mole Street, it formed a distinct village within Sparkbrook. Edward Derrick grew up locally, but he is a shadowy figure. The 1881 census showed that he was living with his mother, father and older siblings in a yard in Mole Street. He was aged two. However, he is not on the 1891 census when his family was living in Emily Street, nearby in Highgate. And then... In the 1901 census, he is given not as Edward, but as Edwin. Whatever the case, 
as an adult, he had a bad name. When I was researching my doctoral thesis in the late 1970s and early 1980s, I spoke with Lil Need, Need Preston, whose family had lived in the same yard of back-to-backs as had Edward Derrick, his wife Ada, and their daughter Maisie, my grandmother. Lil Need recalled that Edward was a violent man who often smashed up his home when he was drunk and that on occasions Ada and Maisie had to hide from him in the communal brewer's washhouse or in the house of Lil's Granny Carey, a woman beloved by all the folk of Studley Street. Perhaps it's not surprising then that the only photos that I have of Edward Derrick are from the Birmingham City Police Records in the West Midlands Police Museum. My grandmother Maisie was only eight when her father deserted her and her mother, although I later found out that somehow she kept in touch with him and that my Uncle Bernard had visited Edward Derrick before he died in 1961. Still, raised amongst her mother's people, the English Weldons, my grandmother Maisie must have had only meagre details about her father's family, and yet one thing that she did pass on was an awareness of her Irish ancestry. She was right. From the 1841 census, her great-grandfather, James Derrick, was shown as living in Bilston, but was given as having been born in Ireland. I am descended from his son John, who was born in 1846 during the hungry 40s, when hardship stalked England and Ireland. He died of myocardial degeneration at the workhouse infirmary in Birmingham in 1914. I had no idea of this personal connection in 1999 when I unveiled a plaque to commemorate all those who had died in the Birmingham workhouse in Western Road, Winds and Green. John would have been the only person who may have known the background to the Derricks and remembered stories about Ireland. They must have died with him. He had a very hard life, as did his father James, who had emigrated from Ireland in the early years of the 19th century and settled in Bilston. Interestingly, a James Derrick is recorded as having fought at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 in the Grenadier Guards. He was aged 17, which would match with the birthday to my ancestor. Be that as it may, in 1841, my James Derrick was recorded on the census as an earthenware dealer aged 35 living with the family of William Casey at the club buildings in Old Meeting Street, Bilston. William was also an earthenware dealer, although at his marriage certificate he was given as a labourer. He had married Mary Hennessy in 1838 in the Catholic Chapel in Wolverhampton, when they were both living in Canal Street, part of the town's Irish Quarter. This date meant that William and Mary Casey were amongst the pioneers of the Irish settlement in Wolverhampton, which had begun in the mid-1830s. After their marriage, William and Mary Casey left Canal Street to live in Bilston. Unfortunately, in the 1841 census for the town, the enumerators did not list the county whence came the local Irish. However, interestingly, the enumerator for Canal Street in Wolverhampton had done so. In total, 138 Irish folk lived there. One each came from Kildare and Tipperary. 17 had no county assigned to them. Three were from Roscommon, 24 hailed from Galway and 92 originated from Mayo. These last three counties were in the west of Ireland, where the people were suffering severe economic hardships before the famine. Overall, of the Irish and Wolverhampton whose origins were given, well over 80% were from the west. Given this strong evidence, it seems likely that William and Mary Casey were from the west of Ireland. This supposition is strengthened by the comment of John Denvere in his book on the Irish in Britain from 1892, when he stated that Father Sherlock's mission to the Irish of Bilston was helped by the fact that he had been taught Irish in his infancy by an old nurse, and he could still remember it pretty well. It was all the better that he'd learned it colloquially, as with a little study, he was able to hear the confessions of his countrymen who could speak in no other tongue. 
So whence came my ancestor James Derrick? A document related to Staffordshire from 1850 stated that he was from Blackpool, a working-class neighbourhood of Cork City. Derricks were present in Cork from at least the later 17th century, and if James did hail from there, he would have been a lonely figure in Bilston. Most of the immigrants from his city and county took the boat to Bristol and thence made their way to London. However, in 1843, a James Derrick was noted on another document from Staffordshire, and this time was given as coming from Westport in Mayo. It is uncertain whether the two James Derricks are one and the same man. Whatever the case, my Irish ancestors, the Derricks and Hennessys, suffered a plenty in the black country in the 1840s and 1850s, although a lot of that suffering was self-inflicted. Amongst the pioneers of the Irish migration to the West Midlands, they were part of a small minority in 1841. The census of that year shows that there were only 378 Irish in Bilston, a town of 20,000 people. This compared to over 1,000 Irish in Wolverhampton and over 4,500 in Birmingham. The Irish, amongst the Myderic and Hennessy ancestors, were very much outsiders in Bilston at the start of the decade, but rapidly the numbers of Irish locally increased. Indeed, as soon as 1842, Mr Hodgkins, the poor law medical officer of Bilston, stated that locally... The occupations of the poorer classes are chiefly colliers, labourers, etc., great numbers of the latter being Irish. He pointed out that much of the town was undrained and mentioned especially that in the high street... Near to a court crowded with Irish, there is a pool of green stagnant water or mud continually. Sometime after the census was taken, James Derrick, my great-great-great-grandfather, married or set up home with an Eliza Hennessy. Now, she may well have been the younger sister of Mary Casey, Nee Hennessy, the wife of William Casey. And don't forget, it was the Caseys with whom James had been lodging. Then on the 5th of February 1846, my great-great-grandfather John Derrick was born in the club building Bilston. His birth was registered by his mother Eliza, who was able only to sign her mark. That indicates that she couldn't read or write. The certificate stated that his father James was now a labourer. A few weeks later, John was baptised at Holy Trinity Roman Catholic Church in Oxford Street, Bilston. He and his parents survived the cholera epidemic that devastated Bilston in 1849, but they were soon smitten by other misfortunes, mostly caused by the criminality of James Derrick. Six years before, in 1843, a man of that name, probably my ancestor, had been convicted of stealing one brass or metal valve and two metal blocks, the property of Richard Harrison and others at the parish of Tipton. For this offence, he was sent to prison for two months' hard labour. Then, in November 1849, he was described as a fellow named James Derrick and was committed to trial at the Sessions for stealing a quantity of iron from the whimsy of a coal pit belonging to Sir Horace St Paul, who possesses mining and landed property. In Wensbury. James had supposedly sold the iron to a woman called Woodward, who kept a sort of marine store in Wensbury. At first, she had been charged with the offence, but had been released after revealing that she had bought the stolen goods from James Derrick. He later called on Mrs Woodward, who had him taken into custody. This felony was proved and my ancestor was in prison for three months hard labour at Stafford County Prison. James Derrick was only a few months out of prison when in June 1850 the Wolverhampton Chronicle recorded that four men were brought before the Bilston magistrates on suspicion of stealing 12 or 13 brasses from a water engine belonging to Messrs William and Henry Cope of the Parkfield Colliery in Sedgley. 
Three of the men by their names appeared to be English. They were Henry Hazeldean, William Gibson and Samuel Harvey. The fourth was my great-great-great-grandfather, James Derrick. He had been arrested in possession of several of the Brassies in a public house in West Bromwich. According to newspaper reports, James Derrick stated that he had been set to sell them by a man named Willits, and he sought to exonerate himself by explaining he was helping the police. He went on to say that on suspicion of his involvement in the robbery, he had previously been taken into custody by Inspector Thompson. This police officer had released James on his promise to try and find out the thieves, and in seeking to do this, he had concealed two of the brasses about his person for the purpose of taking them to Mr Thompson when he was taken into custody. Willits was in court. He denied the truth of the statement made by James Derrick. The reporter stressed that Willits does not bear the best of characters. Other circumstances added to the likelihood of there being some truth in the defence. However, the bench deemed it their duty to commit Derrick to the sessions. Gibson was discharged whilst Hazeldean and Harvey were remanded. It was not a favourable time to be an Irishman before the magistrates in Bilston. In late June 1850, a number of leading citizens had sent a memorial to the local magistrates. So as to disturbances amongst the Irish inhabitants of Newtown Bilston. It drew attention to the very frequent outrages and public breaches of the peace that have for some time past occurred amongst the Irish which abound in and about Warwick Street and Temple Street to the annoyance of the peaceable part of the inhabitants and to the disgrace of the town generally. They went on to declare that the outrages complained of are often of the most fearful description, commencing upon a Saturday evening and continuing to the Lord's Day, and from the deadly weapons which are generally resorted to by the parties, it is very dangerous for one police officer alone, as is often the case, to interfere and suppress them. Accordingly, the petitioners requested another officer so that two policemen together, by their united efforts, may effect much good, if not entirely put an end to such disgraceful scenes. Unsurprisingly, in this anti-Irish atmosphere, Irish culprits were more likely to be sent to prison for longer sentences for any misdemeanour, as happened to James Derrick, now described as a rag-and-bone dealer. In July 1850, he was found guilty of stealing the Milbrassies from the pit at Sedgley, along with Thomas Davies, another man who was arrested at a later date. The latter received only a three-month sentence, but James was sentenced to ten years' transportation to Australia. From Stafford, James Derrick was taken to Millbank Prison in London, which had opened in 1821. When my ancestor went there, it was described as a massive brickwork equal to a fortress on the left bank of the Thames, close to Vauxhall Bridge. It is the largest prison in London. Every male and female convict sentenced to transportation in Great Britain is sent to Millbank previous to the sentence being executed. Here they remain about three months under the close inspection of the three inspectors of the prison, at the end of which time the inspectors report to the Home Secretary and recommend the place of transportation. Millbank was demolished in 1890 and the Tate Gallery was later built on the site. In this holding prison, James and the other inmates were assessed before they were sent for transportation. Those who were deemed most likely to reform were allowed to serve their time in England. Fortunately, James Derrick was amongst this group and he was transferred to Shorncliffe Prison in Kent at the end of April 1851. In the prison's register, he is described as of sallow complexion with dark hair and grey eyes. He was short with a height of five foot four and a half inches and slender of build and had large thin ears and open nostrils. His right thumb was broken and his face was pock-pitted, suggesting that he had suffered an illness such as smallpox or some other nasty disease. 
married with three children and a Roman Catholic, James could neither read nor write. A labourer by occupation, his character was given as good. After almost six months at Shorncliffe, James was transferred to Dartmoor in Devon. Built in the Napoleonic Wars for French prisoners of war, it lay empty from 1815 until 1850, when it was largely rebuilt and commissioned as a convict jail. Isolated as it was, its bleakness was exacerbated by its forbidding grey stone outer wall that was one mile in length. Within the walls, a harsh regime was imposed and Dartmoor was feared as the most severe institution of its kind in England. Flogging was commonplace and diseases spread swiftly because of overcrowding. Dressed in yellow canvas uniforms which were very rough on the skin and wearing canvas and wooden shoes, the prisoners had to labour in quarries and on the farm. James Derrick was released early from Dartmoor on licence in 1855. There is then a gap in evidence of him although a J.D. was recorded as an inmate of Wolverhampton Workhouse in 1861. Four years later, a Bridget Derrick married William Robinson. Both came from Canal Street, Wolverhampton. William was a boatman, and the ceremony took place in St. Peter's Anglican Church. Bridget's father was named as James Derrick, a labourer, although by the time of the 1871 census, he was once again given as a rag and bone gatherer. He was aged 75 and was also living in Canal Street. Conditions here, in the town's Irish quarter, were dreadful. Back in 1849, a sanitary investigation had highlighted Mr Fryer's yard in Canal Street as having middens, pigsties and open stagnant ditches, whilst Caribbean Island was a congregation of ruinous cottages to which there are no sewers or drains. The surface of the ground is unpaved and filthy to a degree. With a filthy water supply, the place was described by a doctor as a fever nest. My ancestor, James Derrick, lived in such a dreadful place and he continued to live a life of crime. In 1869, he was acquitted of soliciting two other men to steal a quantity of copper piping, the property of the Great Western Railway. He escaped punishment because the prosecutor did not turn up in court. James finally died in the Wolverhampton Workhouse in 1872. A lonely figure, as much because of his own faults as because of his misfortune, he had no family with him. For most of his life, James Derrick seems to have lived a life that was out of place. He had lived on the margins, and now in death, he was cast out beyond the margins. A pauper, he was buried in a public grave with other paupers, and with no headstone to mark that he had ever lived. Now, what had happened to my great-great-great-grandmother Eliza Derrick and her children after her husband James had been sent to prison? Soon after his conviction, Eliza herself was sentenced in October 1850 to six months' hard labour for stealing... From the person of John Green at Bilston, one half-crown and one sixpence in silver coin, his property. According to the newspaper report, she'd approached a victim on a Sunday afternoon. Taking his arm, she began to relate how she'd been ill-treated by two men nearby. But while she was doing so, the prosecutor felt her hand clutching some money in his pocket and very unceremoniously cut short her story. Fearful that the two men were involved with Eliza, the victim sent a boy to fetch a policeman. The reporter of the court case stated that Eliza was an Irish woman, although the 1851 census recorded that she was aged 25 and had been born in Bilston. However, her family was Irish. As for her children, after her imprisonment, they were put into the Wolverhampton Union Workhouse. My great-great-grandfather John was six, and his younger sister Mary was five. The Journal of the Master of Wolverhampton Workhouse reveals some of the hardships endured by such pauper children. 
In June 1843, Joseph Rollins and his wife complained that one of their children had been cruelly beaten on by the man clerk who has the care of the male children. Whilst a few months later, it was found that a nurse had improperly beaten a child in the nursery. Irish Catholic children, like my ancestor John Derrick, faced another problem in the Wolverhampton workhouse, attempts to draw them away from their faith. A local priest, Father O'Sullivan, had provided a teacher at his own expense to go into the institution and to teach the Catholic catechism to the relevant youngsters. However, in the spring of 1851, the authorities denied this priest access to the 20 Roman Catholic children. They were aged from 6 to 10 years, and amongst them were my ancestors, the Derricks. In March, Father O'Sullivan expressed his surprise at this development to the Board of Guardians, and a special subcommittee was set up to look into the complaint. A week later, as reported in the Wolverhampton Chronicle, the Guardians were told that the children had stated, that they wished to be Protestants but could not tell why. Mr Richard Wallen, a Catholic member of the board, argued that they were too young to make such a decision. Ignoring this insight, the chairman ruled that it would be wrong to ignore their wishes and force them against their conscience to attend instruction by the representative of the Church of Rome. Undeterred, Father O'Sullivan wrote to the Poor Law Board in London. He explained that Catholic children in the Wolverhampton workhouse were Influenced by some indirect means to refuse attending upon the Roman Catholic priest who visits the house twice a week for the purpose of instructing them in the religion of their parents, that they are taught the catechisms of the Church of England and sent to prayers with the Church of England children. Father O'Sullivan believed that the youngsters had been tampered with and that it was wrong to expect them to make a decision on whether to attend Catholic instruction. His stand was supported by the central body and the Wolverhampton Guardians were directed to make certain that the Catholic children until of age to make an intelligent, unbiased and independent choice for themselves be brought up in the religious opinions which their parents professed. Despite this objectionable episode and the fact that my ancestor, John Derrick, went on to marry in an Anglican church, he must have remained true to his parents' faith. This is because his son and my great-grandfather, Edward Derrick, gave himself as a Roman Catholic in 1898 when he joined the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, a militia battalion and one of the forerunners of the Territorial Army. And what of Eliza, James Derrick's wife? Intriguingly, in 1855, shortly after he was released from prison on licence, an Eliza Hennessy married a William Casey at Christchurch, West Bromwich, an Anglican and not a Roman Catholic church. Both of them were living at Swan Village, West Bromwich. Eliza Derrick, of course, was a Hennessy by birth. Perhaps she had not been married to James Derrick after all, and after living without him for several years, did not want to go back to him when he had been released from prison, especially as he was about 25 years older than her. Perhaps, too, Eliza's older sister, Mary Casey, had died, so that Eliza was now marrying her brother-in-law, William Casey. This thought is encouraged by further evidence. On the marriage certificate between William and Eliza, William gave his father as Richard Casey, a farmer. These were the same details as were on the marriage lines of William Casey and Mary Hennessy. Moreover, Mary had put down her father as James Hennessy, as did Eliza Hennessy when she married William Casey. One last thing, Eliza could not write. She signed her marriage certificate with her mark, as had Eliza Derrick on the baptismal certificate of her son John. 
Six years after the marriage between Eliza and William Casey, an Eliza Casey is included on the 1861 census returns as an inmate for the Warsaw Workhouse. A widow, born in Ireland, she had four children aged under eight and she was given as having been a huckster, a travelling seller of crocs. This is suggestive as back in 1841, both William Casey and James Derrick had been working as earthenware dealers, travelling sellers of crocs. Interestingly, the 1861 census recorded my great-great-grandfather John Derrick living as a 15-year-old on his own and fending for himself at 181 Cock Street, Darleston, in the Walsall area. He was an ironstone miner. Ten years later, John had moved to Birmingham and was living in Hurst Street, close to the present National Trust Back-to-Back Museum. A telegraph pole worker, he was lodging with Edward Thompson and his widowed daughter Catherine. A few months later, on the 31st of July, John and Catherine married at St Andrew's Church of England in Borsley. Unlike his wife, he was able to sign his name, something he must have learned in the Wolverhampton workhouse. Shortly before they married, they moved to Alcock Street, Derrit End, as shown by the fact that on the 12th of June 1871, the Birmingham Mail reported that John Derrick, a labourer, was fined 10 shillings for assaulting a police constable in Alcock Street. The officer's attention had been called to a row between the prisoner and his wife, in the course of which a tremendous blow from a poker rebounded from the wall and struck the constable. By the time of the 1881 census, the Derricks were living in a back-to-back upper yard in Mole Street, Sparkbrook. With them were Catherine's daughter from her first marriage, their daughter Flora, aged six, and their sons John, nine, James, four, and my great-grandfather Edward, two. He and his younger brother Frederick and their oldest brother John would soon gain criminal records. Frederick became a housebreaker, a burglar, whilst John was a violent gang member. In February 1891, aged 20, he was charged with assaulting a police constable in Thomas Street, later part of Highgate Road, in Sparkbrook. This, of course, was during the days of the notorious slugging of Peaky Blinder gangs, and John was obviously one of them. A labourer and then living with his family in Emily Street in Highgate, John Derrick was well known to the police authorities as belonging to a gang of roughs who were constantly creating disturbances in Sparkbrook. On January the 31st, John Derrick had been one of a gang causing a row and when Police Constable Rag had tried to stop it and take one of the offenders into custody, Derrick had thrown a brick at him. Inspector Harrison told the magistrates that the prisoner was a constant source of annoyance as one of the leaders of the rowdies of the district. He was given six weeks in jail. By then, John's younger brother Edward, my great-grandfather, was aged 11 and he was in the Penn Street Industrial School. His time there failed to save him from a life of crime. In 1893, he was convicted of vagrancy and in October 1894, he served seven days in prison for stealing five loaves. Just weeks later, the 16-year-old Edward Derrick was sentenced to four months hard labour for burglary. He followed this up in 1897 by being sent down for five months and handed a two-year supervision order for stealing a bicycle. Edward Derrick was not out of prison long before he was convicted of using obscene language and then imprisoned for 12 months in October 1898 for breaking into a counting house. It was stated that he was five foot three and a half inches tall, had a blue mark on the back of one forearm and wrist and a tattoo of a mermaid on the back of the other forearm. Now a serial offender, in 1899, Edward Derrick assaulted a police constable. In 1900, he was arrested for drunkenness, and in October 1901 at Stafford, and under the alias of Frederick Pitt, he was sent away for three years for bodily harm. Finally, in 1906, he was sentenced to two months' hard labour for stealing a basket carriage from a widow. 
A year later, Edward Derrick married my great-grandmother Ada Weldham at Christchurch Sparkbrook. He gave himself as a bricklayer, although previously he had stated that he was a tailor and he would later be described as a scrap iron dealer and a rag and bow man. Marriage did not change Edward Derrick for the better and he became a wife-beater. There was a story in our family that Ada finally went on to divorce Edward Derrick after he had abandoned her. I always doubted this, thinking it was too expensive for a working-class person to be able to afford the high cost of divorce. I was wrong. Ada did get a divorce in 1922 and was able to do so as a poor person under the rules of the Supreme Court. The divorce documents confirm that from the summer of 1913, Edward Derrick had failed to provide food or clothing for his wife and child, Maisie. They got by on Ada's wages as a press worker in the brass trade. Then, in April 1915, he had violently assaulted Ada and threatened to kill her at her house at 25 Studley Street. Six months later, Edward physically attacked his wife with his fist and caused her bodily harm. It was emphasised in the documents that he had frequently given way to drink and had used foul and abusive language towards Ada and that he has frequently smashed various articles of furniture and has broken up two homes. Thankfully, from January 1916, Edward Derrick deserted his wife and daughter and moved to Coventry. He lived until he was 85, dying in 1964 in Nuneaton. As for Ada, she went on to marry my granddad Chin. She was later reported stating that she had left Edward Derrick for a better man, and she had. Indeed, there was a stark difference between the Chin and Derrick families. The Derricks were thieves and the men were violent ruffians. The Chins were not. Yet both families were poor in the later 19th century, living in the same street for a time and always in the same locality. Both rented small, two-bedroom, back-to-back houses that were badly built and insanitary. Both had to share communal facilities like the brewers, the washhouse and lavatories. Both were enshrouded in a polluted environment. And in both families, the men earned too little to push themselves above the poverty line so that each family had to get by with opposing coping strategies. To help their mum and dad, my granddad Chin and his younger brothers sold the Birmingham mail around the streets after school and hawked thyme and mint on the Ladypool Road. Their mother took in washing for the better off in Mosley and sold second-hand clothes in the rag market. By contrast, the Derricks coped by turning to crime. What caused this marked difference between the two families which lived in similar conditions? Well, the Chins had a strong family bond and were part not just of a nuclear family but of a wide extended family with positive female and male role models. The Derricks did not have such powerful links or role models. Their family was dysfunctional from the beginning with James and Eliza and continued to be dysfunctional over the next two generations. I knew of the Derricks growing up but knew little about them until my adulthood. However, they have made a mark upon me. My granddad Chin's side were tall and fair-skinned. I am short, dark-haired and sallow-skinned. So too was my grandmother Maisie Derrick and so too was my ancestor James Derrick and my great-grandfather Edward Derrick, my criminal ancestors. You can learn more about the stories of the real Peaky Blinders in Carl Chin's films made for History West Midlands. Sign up for our newsletter and order his fascinating book at the website www.historywm.com. Thank you.